0: Well, if we have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter nine. We're continuing our, our trek through Matthew's gospel. And isn't it isn't it a great privilege that's ours that the Christ who, who is our only hope in life and death, who we confess and we we worship, we actually have his words and his message and his teachings preserved for us. So, so we don't just have to worship a, a Christ, taking that we can't know. We we worship a Christ too who, who has been revealed to us through this word. And so what a privilege it is for us to study, especially a gospel, where we encounter this Christ who was crucified, buried, and rose again. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 17, and we'll read that in just a minute. But, but in terms of introduction, I just, I just want to back up in Matthew's gospel and just point out, point out, because I think it's helpful, at least to me it is, the, the kind of the overall structure of Matthew's gospel. And so in case you weren't here at the beginning or maybe you've forgotten, Matthew organizes his gospel around five major discourses. There's five large sections of teaching that Matthew has throughout his gospel. And then between these five teachings, he has sections of narrative of what Jesus does. And then there are some smaller teachings between these, but there's five major discourses. And so we, we've already covered the first discourse, which is probably the most famous, the, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So that's, that's, that's the first discourse. And so we've, we've finished that, and now we're in a section of narrative. Now, in chapter 10, there's going to be a second discourse. In chapter 13, there's another discourse. In chapter 18, there's another discourse. And then the final discourse, the fifth one, which is probably the second most well-known is the, the Olivet Discourse, which is chapters 24 and 25, which, Lord willing, we'll get there in, who knows, months, maybe years. We'll see. Um, but those are the five discourses. But between those, as I said, there's sections of narrative, which tell what, about what Jesus did, and then some of the shorter conversations or teachings. Well, so right now, we're, we're after the first discourse in chapters 8 and 9. We've been following the ministry of Jesus, and we've seen in this section of narrative that, that Matthew's alternating between miracles and teachings of Jesus. And so chapter 8, and you can just look there, you can turn the page, or look at the beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, this is immediately found the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount ends, and then Matthew says, okay, verses 1 through 17, there's three miracles. There's the leper healed, the centurion's servant healed, and then Peter's mother-in-law healed, which is symbolic of the rest, or or a pattern of all those who are healed. So there's three miracles in 1 through 17, and then verses 18 through 22, there's this teaching. And the focus of the teaching is on discipleship, specifically the cost of following Jesus. And then last week, we came with three more miracles. The storm being called, the demoniacs being cast out, and then the paralytic being healed. Okay, so it's three miracles, teaching on discipleship, three miracles. And this this week's message, the the passage focuses on discipleship. And then, a spoiler alert to prepare you in the coming weeks, next week, guess how many miracles we're going to see? We're going to see three. And then guess what's going to follow the week after those three miracles? It's going to be another teaching on discipleship. And so it's just helpful for me to know this structure. Matthew is intentionally organizing his gospel. And so I want you to know that as you're reading, a good student would would look for these patterns. But also, I mention all this because it helps us understand why today's passage is put where it is and what the main point is, which is simply a pattern of discipleship. So in our passage, as I'm going to read in just a minute, but we're going to see there's two groups of disciples. There's the Pharisees, which is really a group of disciples. They're disciples of the law, of of the Lord, they would say. But there's the Pharisees, and then there's John's disciples. And what we're going to see is both of these groups of disciples have traditions or norms. They both have practices that that characterize them. And when these groups encounter Jesus and the nature of his ministry and and what he's doing, they don't have categories to understand what's going on with, with this rabbi from Nazareth. They they don't understand. And so there's going to be two questions in today's passage. One question is, why does Jesus do this from the first group? And then the second group is going to say, why doesn't Jesus do this? And those two questions are, they they tell us and convey to us, these guys don't understand what Jesus is doing. The, The questions from these two groups of disciples taken together make the clear point that Jesus has come to call unlikely followers to be part of a new kingdom, I mean, that's the point. Jesus calls unlikely followers to be part of a new kingdom, which is why we've titled today's sermon, or I've titled it. No one else can, can take blame here. I've titled today's sermon, Disciples of the King, because that, that's the point. What type of disciples does Jesus call, and what, part of a king, what type of kingdom are they called to be part of? So let's read Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. I'm going to read them. You can follow along, and then I'm going to pray for us. So, Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to Matthew, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, that's the first group, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a, of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. Quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, End quote. For, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will then fast. But no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and, the wor- and a worse tear is made. Neither is new, new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Well, let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, as we have just heard your word read, and Father, and as we seek to, to learn and apply your word, we ask that you would, through your word, accomplish what you desire. We ask that your word would achieve the purpose for which you have sent it, specifically for the purpose you've sent it here to us this morning. Namely, that we would behold and worship Christ the King, that we would be transformed more and more into his likeness, into likeness of him whom we joyfully and willingly and assuredly confess as our one true hope, both in life and death. We worship you Christ. Teach us now, Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, we got there, there's three points here as we work through this, this passage. We're gonna see, first point, the pattern of discipleship, just there in verse nine. Then second, the qualifications of disciples. What what are the followers like? What's the qualification needed? That's verses 10 through 13. And then finally, thirdly, the nature of the kingdom, verses 14 through 17. So those are our three points. That's our outline. So we're going to work through those one at a time. So look there first, the pattern of discipleship. Look there, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, so, so the transition is away from the healing of this paralytic. Jesus continues; he passes on, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to Matthew, "Follow me." And Matthew rose and followed him. Now, in one sense, I could I could move on because we hear that and we understand what's happened. We get the main idea: Jesus is a rabbi, and he's got he's got some people following him at this point. He sees a man, he says, "Come, follow me," and this man hears it, and that's what happened. So we understand what's happened. But the reason that Matthew is pinpointing this call, it's not simply to place himself within the story. So, so just so you know, this man, who, this is a biographical account of the one writing the gospel, this is Matthew's gospel, this is Matthew's conversion or Matthew's call. Okay, if maybe you have a, a note in your Bible, if the same calling in Mark and Luke, Matthew is referred to as Levi. It's not uncommon for people to have two names. So, so Matthew is simply saying, this is who I am, I'm Matthew. Ma- Mark and Luke would say, this is Levi, it's the same guy. Okay, so, so it's his calling, but Matthew doesn't just want you guys to know, "Hey, I'm part of this story. I know what I'm talking about. I was there. Matthew, I think more importantly, for this specific passage, wants us to know the nature of this man that is called, who he was when he was called, this tax collector that was called to follow Jesus. Matthew wants us to know that he was different than the other disciples. His prior life wasn't a fisherman. Well, it wasn't a carpenter. What well, wasn't one of those? It was a tax collector. And that's significant, and, and maybe you've heard stories about tax collectors and, and how they're treated or how they're thought of, but, but just listen to this quote. Here's a, what one commentator says about, about how tax collectors functioned in this culture. So the, the Romans taxed people by farming out the tax rights to the highest bidder. And so the Romans are in rule, and they, they wanted to collect taxes, so they say, hey, whoever pays us the most money. So the successful man, the highest bidder, would then pay Rome the amount that he bid, but then would collect more than that to pay the expenses and to give him his profit. But it was a strong temptation to levy levy more tax than was strictly necessary and then to pocket the extra. That's what they did. They taxed as much as they could, as much as they wanted, and they kept the extra. And so this provoked resentment, especially among the patriotic Jews, who in any case did not like to see Jews, other Jews, helping the Romans by collecting taxes from their own people. And so because of this, this vicious cycle developed, the, the more that they overtaxed, the more they were hated. The more they were hated, the more they overtaxed. So, so these Jewish tax collectors were despised. And that's what Matthew was. He was a tax collector employed by the Romans and made his living, made his excessive living by taking advantage of his own people. And so wherever they were, if they were fishermen, they come in and, oh, there's a tax for that. Oh, you, you, you bring in your, your crops. Well, there's a tax for that. Oh, yeah, here you, you've got animals coming. Here's a tax. You want to drive on this road? There's a tax. And so here's Matthew constantly before his fellow Jews saying, you owe Rome money and it's going to come through me. And so just being familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. Remember when, when he met Jesus, he said, oh, my goodness, I've got to pay everyone back. There was a lot to pay back because he had taken advantage of a lot of people. The tax collectors were a despised group of people, often grouped in the Gospels with the outcasts or the sinners. They're often synonymous with sinners. And so this is Matthew. This was his profession, and he was actually in his tax booth when Jesus passes by. And so he's unlike the other disciples. He's probably the wealthiest of the disciples and probably the most despised. And all that notwithstanding, here we have Jesus calling Matthew to follow him. And the call don't miss, is followed by what seems to be an unqualified response. No questions mentioned, no reservations recorded. Matthew rose and followed him. Which is what helps transition to the next section. Matthew, the tax collector, is a certain type of person. And it sets the stage for Jesus and what type of person he calls. But but I just want to pause here and just make a brief point of application, which is simply this. The call to follow Jesus starts right where you are. We shouldn't miss that here. Jesus doesn't call Matthew to, to come out of the tax booth and, and pursue a legitimate means of wealth or, or to stop taking advantage of people or to, to go to the priest and, and offer the sacrifices and, and then, here's my card, call me after you've done all that. The details of Matthew's life would work themselves out. Right? There were things that needed to change, but it's simply recorded here. Jesus saw Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said, follow me. It's, it's a simple call. There, there's no prior training. There's no 90-day trial period. There's, there's no application process, no, no entry essay for Jesus to read before accepting him. Jesus calls. And I just want to say, Jesus calls you where you are to follow him. Are you following him? Are you faithfully following this, this rabbi with all authority who, who has called you to follow him faithfully? Imagine all the reasons that Matthew had to hesitate. Imagine all the details and questions and fears that Matthew probably had. I mean, he sees the people behind him, and, and he's like, what are they going to think about me coming with you, Jesus? If I follow you, I mean, it means I've got to be with these people. They hate me. Surely there are lots of hesitations, but, but Matthew hears the call of the king, and he obeys. He comes. The call of the king. He leaves everything. Matthew, Mark, rec- rec- include he... He leaves everything. Matthew doesn't say that. Matthew just says he follows. And so I just want to make that point. I don't know if you need to hear that for your own sake. Maybe you're convinced that Jesus couldn't want someone like you. Maybe your current situation is is too messed up. The reality is Jesus calls you where you are. He'll take you as you are. Jesus is calling you. Maybe you need to hear that for yourself or maybe you need to hear that for the sake of a loved one or a neighbor. Someone that in your mind is too far gone. Someone who's a tax collector. in 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 modern times you need to hear that jesus calls people to follow him and matthew's status as a tax collector are part of those that jesus calls matthew makes the point i think here on one hand there are all types of people that are called to follow jesus tax collectors and fishermen and others so there's all types of people but on the other hand there's only really one type of person and that's what leads to the next section the qualifications there's only one qualification so let's look there verses 10 through 13. what's the qualifications Matthew jumps right into this story, but but before you look at verse 10, Matthew simply says, look at verse 10 actually. Matthew says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house. So Matthew just says, at the house. Well, Mark and Luke both say that this house is not just a random house. It's not Jesus' house. It's not another disciple's house. It's Matthew's house. It's the tax collector's house. And so verse 10 through 13, this setting is in Matthew's house. Matthew doesn't tell us that, but the other Gospels tell us that. And so Matthew begins following Jesus, and then he says, hey, I know what I've got to do. I've got to have all my friends meet Jesus. Hey, Jesus, come to my house, and, and I want all my friends to meet you, because, because I, I've been transformed, and now I want other people to meet you, too. So he invites all his friends, and look at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, surprise, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. And his disciples. I think that's something to be said about the disciples. They're there too reclining. But Jesus is there with many tax collectors and sinners, and he's reclining at this house. And so Jesus is there. He's not just there. He's eating and gathering with Matthew and his friends. In fact, he might even be smiling and laughing among the sinners. Can you believe that? Eating with them... In dining, he's reclining with them, and they're reclining with him. And so that's what's happening. And, and, and so there's the religious leaders. Look at verse 11. The, this, this scene doesn't play well, doesn't sit well with them. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I think we, we can be fair that the Pharisees wouldn't be opposed to Jesus teaching these tax collectors and sinners. I think they'd be fine with him teaching them. In fact, they probably had a regular practice of teaching these types of people. But they would never, even for a moment, entertain the thought of eating with these types of people. So, so they, would, they would teach them from afar. You're a sinner. You need to get clean. You need to go to the temple. You need to offer your sacrifices. So they would teach them, but it was from a distance. And it was down a long nose. Unlike Jesus, they had no interest in anyone who was unclean or unrighteous. Unless it was them setting them straight. So they want to know, hey, disciples, why does Jesus do this? Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? If if he's a righteous man, as he appears to be, or as he proclaims to be, if he was sent by God and truly was sent by God, then surely he wouldn't be gathered with people like this in a setting like this. You see, in the ancient world, generally a, a shared meal was a clear sign of identification. And so for a Jewish religious teacher to share a meal with such people was scandalous. I mean, this was taking place in the house of an unclean tax collector. And so the Pharisees, they, 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 can't, they can't fathom that this teacher from God would be doing this. I mean, it reminded me of back in chapter 8. Remember when Jesus, the centurion servant, the Gentile centurion came and showed uh, th- this level of faith that Jesus said, I've never seen faith like this before. And in fact, Jesus says, the Gentiles are going to come and dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while the the sons of Israel, the Jews who who are not receiving me with faith, are going to be cast out into hell. If only they'd have gotten that message. But instead they say, hey, he's with unclean Gentiles. I can't, he he shouldn't be doing that. So they ask the disciples why he's doing that. In verse 12, when he heard it, so I I just love this interaction. They're talking to the disciples. What would the disciples have said? Who knows? Jesus doesn't give him the the opportunity because Jesus heard it, and he says, hey, I've got the answer. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call not righteous, but sinners. And so Jesus introduces this this physical analogy, which is clear to understand. It's a a physical analogy of a spiritual reality. He simply says, hey, those who are well don't need a doctor. And I think this makes sense. We, we don't typically go to the ER or the doctor's office if we feel great. I mean, of course, there's those annual checkups or the, the, the every six years or, in, in some case, every, every decade annual checkup. But I'm talking about that. If, if you feel fine, there's nothing to like, oh, my goodness, I need to go to the doctor. Instead, when, when something's wrong, when, when you know your heart's out of rhythm or, or you've got an ache in your foot or, or something is wrong, you think, I need help. I need a remedy. And so you go to the doctor. And so Jesus says that that, that's a reality. But he's applying it spiritually. Those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means, verse 13. Jesus then issues about as harsh of a rebuke as he can to the Pharisees. When he says, go learn what this means, quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, end quote. Right? That is a harsh rebuke because... These words don't originate with Jesus. and Instead, he's referring to, he's quoting an Old Testament passage, Hosea chapter 6, specifically verse 6. And so when he's talking to the Pharisees, they would know exactly what he means. So what does he mean? We don't know as so we just read. What was the original context of that statement? So back in Hosea, I mean, if you're familiar with even broadly the book of Hosea, maybe you've read the book, or maybe you've seen the movie, which maybe they're helpful, maybe they're not, but... The book of Hosea, generally speaking, is a book dedicated to the unfaithfulness of Israel. They are adulterers. They're they're spiritual adulterers. And in their setting, during the time of Hosea, the Israelites were evil people. They were set on evil. Then they were forsaking the Lord. They, They were bent on disobeying their covenant Lord. They were wicked, adulterous, pining after other gods. They were habitual, spiritual adulterers. That's the Israel of Hosea. In fact, the prophet Hosea has to, has to teach them that lesson in a very personal way, painful personal way. But in Hosea chapter 6, specifically in verse 6, the Lord issues a rebuke to the Israelites. And they issue this, they're rebuked because, listen to what they're doing, they are relying on their correct ritual obedience, their sacrifice. So they're like, hey, we're fine, everything's fine, we're, we're offering our sacrifices, while at the same time ignoring the moral demands of their religion. In fact, I, I thought about this. that The Israelites of Hosea's time were, were the proto-Pharisees. Or the original Pharisees. Because they were all about all about doing the right things. They were all about keeping the external commands. And, and they looked good doing it because they checked all the boxes and dotted all the I's. But they completely missed the point of the law. Which is being merciful. And so... In doing that, the Israelites in Hosea's time prove themselves to be strangers to the covenant. They don't get it. They they don't know God. They they prove that. They're adulterers. They're strangers to the covenant. Outsiders. No different than the pagans around them. And Jesus, obviously aware of, of the history of God's people, clearly knowing the issue of the Israelites in Hosea's day, Jesus says to the Pharisees, in his day, you need to go learn now the lesson that the Israelites needed to learn then. Go learn what this means. Go read Hosea 6.6, 6, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, you are just as lost as the unfaithful, adulterous Israelites who the Lord rebuked in Hosea 6.6. Go read that. You need to hear that just as much as they did. You need to learn, Pharisees, what it means to be God's people because I think this is an implication Jesus would, would make clear. If you truly understood the situation, you would recognize that your strict adherence to the laws of cleanliness and ritual purity, the reason you won't gather with these people These obedient rituals that you're obeying have caused you to completely disregard those among you who are most in need. You care about rules and don't give a lick about people. Which, let's be clear, is diametrically opposed to the purposes of God in the ministry and mission of Jesus. That misses the point. Which is why Jesus, after issuing this harsh rebuke, issues one of the most remarkable, shocking, comforting, encouraging statements that I would say he ever uttered. Go learn what this means. That is our mercy, not sacrifice. For reason, substantive clause, here's why I came not to call the righteous but sinners. I came not to call righteous but sinners. Matthew has just showed us what it looks like to call a sinner. A tax collector from his booth. Come follow me. Now, Jesus says, this this is what it looks like. I've come to call people like Matthew, like his friends. And this is the one qualification of those whom Jesus calls, not righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to call sinners. Now, the point isn't that the Pharisees are righteous, therefore they have no need of Jesus. He's not saying, well, I, I didn't come to deal with you, I just came to deal with these sinners. That's not what Jesus is saying. The point I think that Jesus would would make very clear is that the righteousness of the Pharisees is a righteousness that causes them to neglect showing mercy, and that's a righteousness that has nothing to do with the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. I think Jesus would say that any righteousness that motivates one to think more highly of himself or herself as more righteous than others is a righteousness that has no place in the kingdom. Self-righteousness is the enemy of the kingdom of Christ. Pride is the enemy of the kingdom of Christ. Jesus wants the Pharisees and wants us to know that the righteousness of the kingdom, which he's talked about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is a righteousness that is rooted in the recognition that we're all sick. It's a righteousness rooted in the reality that we're all in need of a physician, that we all are sinners in need of the remedy that Jesus has come to provide. So so according to Jesus, the coming of this kingdom, it's a great reversal. It's not the righteous who are called, it's not the Pharisees who have the monopoly on knowing God, it's not the strict law keepers who are in, in fact, they're out. Those who are in, those who are invited and called and accepted are the sinners, those who are considered outcasts, unclean, those who know their sickness and their need for a physician. In a word, those who have a part in the kingdom that Jesus brings are sinners. That's the qualification. Jesus dines with Matthew. And it's tax collecting and sinner friends because they know their sickness. They know their sickness in a way the Pharisees don't. I mean, let's be clear. These tax collectors and sinners, as labeled by the Pharisees, they are sinners. The reputation was accurate. People labeled them as sinners, and it was true. They were sinners. But we must not assume that the statement that Jesus issues vindicates the Pharisees. The reality is the Pharisees and the tax collectors, they're all sinners. There's no difference they're all sinners the difference between the tax collectors and sinners is that one knows they're sinners and the others have no clue the sinners the tax collectors they're aware of their sickness and in fact they welcome doctor visitations yeah jesus come in come to my house come sit meet my friends they they welcome the great physician the pharisees on the other hand though they're just as sick they don't know they're sick, they don't think they need a doctor. They're self-righteous. No, 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 that's not for me. That repentance thing, no, I'm good. I don't, I don't need a doctor. I'm actually pretty healthy. Well, on the inside, they, they're dying from the, the rot of sin within. They're self-righteous, they're, they're confident in their relationship with the Lord because they do the right things. They keep the rules, and they, they think, "Hey, we're good because we do what we're supposed to do." And Jesus won't let them live in that deception, in that lie. Yeah, it, it is a lie. To think that God's approval of you, his acceptance of you, is based on your law-keeping, on on you doing what you're supposed to do. If you think God accepts you because you show up at church every week or because, because you do this or do that, you're believing a false gospel that will lead you straight to hell. It's a false gospel that has already sent millions to their eternal destruction. Hear me say, the gospel is not that you can earn God's favor. Don't come sit here thinking that God's saying, oh, I'm so pleased with him today. I'm going to bless them because they did good. That is a false gospel. That's a works-based religion that's no different than Hinduism or Islam. God doesn't, and you don't want him, to deal with you according to your works for your salvation. The good news for tax collectors, the good news for the Pharisees, the good news for me, the good news for you is that Jesus came for sinners, and we all qualify. We all qualify, which leads to, to maybe the point... Of application from this text, which is simply this: Do you know that Jesus came to call sinners? Do you know that Jesus came to call broken people? He he came to invite the seemingly ineligible, the sick, the broken. Maybe you're here. You're not a Christian. I want you to know that Jesus came to call the broken and the messed up, the those who can't seem to get it together. Maybe you're trying. Your life isn't going as you thought. You're like, I just gotta. If I go to church, things will get better. Maybe you you found yourself lacking time and time again. Jesus came to say, stop trying. Stop trying. People like Matthew, people like me, people like you, Jesus came to call sinners, and we all qualify. I I remember uh, this probably 10 years ago, a conversation with with someone who was so interested in Christianity, and he wanted to know about Jesus, and he got the gospel, but he, he said, I've just got to get some things right before I believe. Because he thought there's some moral standard that you have to reach before Jesus could accept him. He's like, no, 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 I'm so broken. You don't know what I did when I was in the military. You don't know how I've lived. I, I just, I just got to deal with that, and then I'll be good. And that, I could say confidently, with, with 100% assurance, Jesus came to call sinners. No qualifications. One of my favorite quotes Maybe you should write this down. Robert Munger is the guy who said this. But just listen. The church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. Do you feel unworthy? Great. Apply within. You feel worthy? Probably not the place for you. Jesus came to call sinners. You can't be too bad. It's impossible. The kingdom is explicitly for people who are unworthy. Unworthy. When oh, we just sing it, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's it. Do you think, oh, I wish Jesus could accept me? Good news, he does. He will. Run to him. In his arms, That there's blessings forevermore. But that truth, it's not just good news for the non-Christian. It is good news for the non-Christian, but it's also... Good news for the Christian. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost, the Apostle Paul would write in 1 Timothy 1.15. The fact that Jesus calls sinners is a truth that sustains the Christian life from start to finish. I'm going to say this. It may not, it may not sit well, but I'm going to say it. Being a Christian isn't fundamentally about not being a sinner. Being a Christian is fundamentally about trusting the one who came to deal with your sin. Being, I don't know what you've heard about Christianity, but this is true. Try me on this. Being a Christian isn't fundamentally about not being a sinner. Though it is, it's not fundamentally about that. It's fundamentally about trusting the one who came to deal with your sin. And so as Christians, when when we encounter sin, we don't say, oh, i got to stop. i got to stop. We say, no, no, I run to Jesus, and I love Jesus more than this. And so I'm fundamentally about going to the one where I'm freely pardoned through his death and resurrection. And so Christian, brother, sister, your recognition of yourself as someone who sins, as someone who's constantly having to fight and wage war against your flesh and sin, sinful desires, is what qualifies you to be a patient at the General Hospital of Grace. Do you know that? Do you know yourself as someone who is a sinner? Because that's what opens the door wide of the general hospital of grace. It's good news for Christians that Christ came to call sinners. I don't know about you, but that's great news for me daily. Be encouraged. Jesus didn't save you assuming that you would stop being a sinner. He he hasn't regretted saving you because your sin still plagues you. He saved you knowing that your entire earthly life would be marked by struggle and toil with sin. And He called you and saved you nevertheless. That's our Jesus who calls sinners. And so we continue to look to Him knowing we're still qualified. As long as we're here on this earth, we're qualified. We continue to lift our eyes to the one who is crucified, buried, and rose again to forgive us of our sins. That's what sustains us. Well, finally, the third heading of the section. Last point, the nature of the kingdom, verses 14 through 17. So, so we dealt with Pharisees. Well, now the disciples of John come to him. Another group. They say, why do we fast, the Pharisees fast, but you guys don't? Why don't they? Right. So, so the issue is clear. Jesus' disciples, they're not fasting. John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. Jesus' disciples not. So so they want to know, why is it? Now, the Pharisees and John's disciples, they're probably fasting for different reasons, but they're both fasting. Fasting is part of their their practice. And so John's disciples, I mean, just just for for the point of clarification, it seems like they're probably fasting in in, in line with with John's call of of repentance, awaiting the dawning of the kingdom, hastening the the come of the kingdom. So so they're probably fasting for that. The Pharisees, they're self-righteously fasting two days a week. That's what they do. Right, but, but fasting is common to both of these, the Pharisees and John's disciples. John's disciples say, well, why aren't you guys doing it? And so Jesus, as he begins making the case as to why his disciples don't fast, look there, verse 15. He asks them a question. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Simple question. To make his point, he uses three separate illustrations. The first one, there's a wedding, and the bridegroom is there with them. Do, do, people fa- do people fast and mourn while they're there with the bridegroom? Of course not. And so Jesus is comparing his ministry, his time, to a wedding celebration. And he himself is playing the role of bridegroom. And he's saying, people don't mourn at a wedding. And maybe some, some family members, maybe they mourn at a wedding because they can't believe what their loved one has done. That's not the point here. In fact, this time, people probably didn't have a choice in who they're married. They just celebrated But anyway, so he's saying people don't mourn at a wedding. And and the nature of weddings, even today, through the span of time, the nature of weddings is celebratory. It's a time of joy, decorations, dancing, and maybe even wine. It's celebration. And so Jesus uses this analogy to answer the question of why his disciples aren't fasting. He's saying it's not fasting time. The bridegroom's here. This, This is the time we've been waiting for. It's time to celebrate. It's not fasting time. Now notice, notice what he implies there, that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. So so Jesus, even now, recognizes there's a day coming when he's gonna be taken away, his death and, and resurrection. That time's coming, but the time is not now. Right now, Jesus says, it's not fitting for my disciples to fast. That's the first analogy or illustration he uses. But he uses two more. Look at verse 16. He just continues. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch, this, this piece of unshrunk cloth, the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And so Jesus here again, it's not time to fast. In fact, this is a new thing that's happening in the coming of the kingdom. And so he uses illustration to, to show the nature of the kingdom. It's, it's new. It's not like the Pharisees. It's not like John's disciples. It's, it's new. And he makes this illustration or analogy with, with an old garment so, so maybe your favorite pair of jeans, it has a hole in it. At this point in time, you couldn't go to Amazon or Walmart to get a new pair of jeans. You couldn't go to the Goodwill. You had to fix what you had. Some of you probably grew up with in that, in that culture. And so when there's a hole, you would sew a patch over to, to, to increase the life of your garment. It seems pretty straightforward, but one thing was necessary. The, the patch, the, the cloth that you're fixing the hole with, this is new material, it would have to be treated. It would have to be shrunk specifically before it was attached to the old garment. The old garment had been worn and washed and worn and washed, so it had, it had shrunk. So if you put a, a new patch on it and get it nice and tight and, and, and there covering the hole, you wash it, the untrunk cloth shrinks, and then where it was attached to the original hole, now gets even bigger. That's his point. So you don't do that, you treat the patch first and then you put it on. A new patch and an old garment, they're incompatible. That's what Jesus, that's, that's his illustration, that's the point. How does it apply to his disciples not fasting? Right? It, simply the newness of Jesus' ministry, it doesn't fit with the old ways of doing things. The Pharisees had become traditionalists in, in, I would say, the worst sense of the word. They were set in stone, this is what we do. And they're expecting Jesus and his disciples to just fall in line and act according to their laws and traditions. But the disciples of John were also traditionalists in the sense that they misunderstood the nature of Jesus' ministries. They weren't willing to say, wait a minute. You're you're supposed to fast. We fast. We're doing it right. So they missed it too. And Jesus is simply saying, fasting while the king is on the scene, while the bridegroom is here, it doesn't make sense. You have to understand what's happening. It's unlike anything that's ever happened in the history of the world. Fasting doesn't fit now. His kingdom is different. It's unlike anything else. It's not new. And then he issues a second illustration, verse 17. Neither, so that's the first point, unshrunk cloth, but neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, so both are preserved. Again, there's this old new language. And again, the logic here beside, behind this, this process, part of the aging and the fermentation process of wine was that it had to release gases and it would expand. And so new wine would be put, placed in new wineskins so that it, it could accommodate for the expansion. And Jesus says you, you, don't, you don't get old expanded wineskin and put new wine in it because that old wineskin they've already been expanded. So you put new wine in it, it can't expand anymore. So it explodes. And not only is the skin ruined, but now the wine is ruined. And so again, his point is there's an incompatibility here. And this is the point that Jesus is making here to John's disciples. It's why his disciples aren't fasting. He's come proclaiming the presence of the kingdom. The bridegroom himself has come and brought with him the kingdom. And it's something new and it's different than anything that has come before. And so the Pharisees and John's disciples, they both misunderstand the nature of Jesus' ministry if they expect him to follow their rules and traditions. It's, it's, It's a new covenant. It's a totally new thing. His mission is not simply to reform or patch up Israel's religion, but to inaugurate a new era of salvation. The kingdom of God has come in the person and work of Jesus. And so this leads to the final point of application, which is simply this, the nature of Christ's kingdom. The nature of the king's kingdom is, is, is that it's it's new. When Jesus takes on flesh and walks on this earth as a man, as he's carrying out his life and ministry, this was the most exciting and anticipated event in all of human history. God was stepping in to begin the process of restoring creation to its intended destiny. I mean, in that small town in Galilee, there were cosmological realities that were shifting. This mere carpenter. Born of a virgin, raised in a in, born in Bethlehem. There's cosmic reality shifting as he is walking and teaching. God is on the move. The kingdom had come. There's no time for gloom and doom and fasting. It was time for celebration. So to understand the nature of Christ's kingdom is to recognize that of all people, the followers of Christ ought to be the most joyful people in the world. He's he's, he's brought the kingdom. It's here now, and it's new, and he, he came and he established it through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The king has come and established his kingdom, and those who are part of Christ, those who are united to him, are part of his kingdom now. And so That's the nature of the kingdom, it's now, but the nature of Christ's kingdom is also then. Now we pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a day coming when that prayer won't be necessary. Because the kingdom of this world will have become the kingdom of our Lord. And his will, will be done perfectly here as it is in heaven. And so there is still a future coming of the kingdom. A, a fulfillment, a full fruition of this kingdom that's already been established or inaugurated. The life ministry, life ministry of Jesus culminated in his life, death, and resurrection has secured the coming of the kingdom. There's no question. No matter how dim life on earth gets, and it can get quite dim, I mean, maybe we think it's dim here in, in our country, maybe it is getting dimmer, but think about brothers and sisters throughout the ages, or, or even now, in countries like North Korea, or Iraq, or Somalia, it's, it's a dim world for Christians. It always has been, it always will be. But no matter how dark it gets, the Christian hope remains, because we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is certain. It's coming. We're holding fast until that day comes. And so we can be encouraged because we have hope. The kingdom has come, and one day it will be fully realized. And of that we can be sure, and that should fill us with hope. We have hope because the king has come. Let's pray.